Hello, everybody, and welcome to the seventh episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week I have the silliest little goose for a guest host. She is a wine girl and a dog mom, too. My guest host this week is Lucy Nelson. Hello, Lucy. How are you? Liam, I'm great, baby. How are you? Oh, I am so good. It is so good to see your cute little face. I just like, I'm obsessed with you. I love you so much. Stop. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. When can we open the wine? Oh, hold. Okay. Slow your horses. Slow your horses a little bit. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) So Lucy is a reporter in Salt Lake City, Utah, but we met when we were competing rival reporters in Jacksonville, North Carolina. But don't worry. We are bestest of friends now. And Lucy, I should also mention that last week we talked about the Mariah Woods case. And I'm wondering if you just wanted to weigh in on um, whatever you wanted to share about that case. Liam, that was the first uh, one of the first stories I heard of before I got to Jacksonville, North Carolina, when I first got that job reporting. I mean, it was just crazy to me how so many people were impacted by that, even mm. when they did. They didn't even know her. But I mean, mm. the whole town was out there looking for her. Just such a brutal case. You know, I mean, I'm sure you covered some of that as well. I mean, we did play like some, and I'll send it to you also, I mean, you might have seen it, but some um, aerial video of just the number of people I showed Meredith, the number of people who showed up to search for Mariah. It was heartbreaking. Um, And, you know, I mean, I know you know what it's like to live in Jacksonville, because like, I know you live in Jacksonville too. And so, um, you know, it was it was devastating to know that that many people really rallied around to try to find this like adorable three-year-old girl. Oh, it's just heartbreaking. I know. And um, I remember we even had stories about how the case was postponed, how the trial was mm-hmm. postponed because it, people were so upset. They wanted they wanted justice mm-hmm. for Mariah. I know the DA was seeking the death penalty. Right. And that didn't mm-hmm. happen. So, I, yeah, I'm sure I know everyone yeah. has their opinions on that, but definitely an impactful case for sure. Yeah. And it was just I mean, it makes me sick to my stomach just knowing like why he did it. And, you know, just for our listeners, like go back and listen to our last episode if you didn't um, yet, because it is um, one of the saddest episodes I think I've ever done and ever listened to. Um, so definitely make sure you grab your glass of wine for that one, because you are definitely going to need it to get through the end of that episode for sure definitely an important one go back and listen but definitely have the glass of wine ready for that one my goodness well speaking of wine um i think we have i think we have a bottle to drink lucy what do you think i think so i finally get to open it yeah let's do it (laughs) so this week we are drinking josh's rose it's from california and the vineyard describes the wine as crisp refreshing and bright it's a light rose with flavors of white peach and strawberry and scents of nectarine which by the way I, so last week we were talking, Meredith and I, the bottle that Meredith and I drank last week also had hints of nectarine and I've never heard of nectarine in a wine before. And so it's just funny how it's two weeks in a row that this is the, the flavors that we're going for. So maybe I'm just missing something, but the vineyard also says it's perfect for sunsets and summer days. And that just like feels like our vibe, Lucy. I feel like that's like, we're summer girls. Oh my God. Summer girls for sure. What did you think of the nectarine? I really actually enjoy the nectarine. I thought it was very refreshing and and the wine that we drank last week, again, was very, it was very subtle. It was subtle enough that you were like, that was like, oh, like oranges. Like, that's really interesting. Um, and so I'm really interested to see what Josh does with it. Um, Our boy so, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to see what happens here. Hopefully Josh keeps me company. I remember my dad, my father came home one day. 
um, he visited my apartment and he was like, um, for when you're lonely, he brought me Josh and Justin wine. He said, here are your boys if you ever need them. I said, thank you, Father. I'm, am I that lonely that I need two bottles of wine? <laughs> like to think so, but no, it's like that new Miley Cyrus song, Flowers. Like, who needs mm-hmm. anyone? We have our Josh. No and he is, he is very refreshing. I'm feeling that refreshing. What do you think? Yeah, I really like it, and I don't really taste the nectarine as much as I did last week, so, Mm. and it is, like, a sweeter rosé for sure, and, you know, I don't really, I'm not huge on sweets, um, you know, I'm, like, a dry, dry wine drinker, um, in case, like, literally, and again, anyone who's listened to our first six episodes know that I literally never, never stop talking about dry wines, um, so this is... You know, I, I, I like it. I think, you know, you make this wine taste so much better because any type of wine, you know, just sitting around chatting with you is a good time for me. Any wine's going to taste better. Just boost me up. Boost my ego up. I love it, Liam. Um, You were the oh, one who also, I just side note, I need to mention that you were the one who taught me about wines and flavors in <gasps> the middle of Jacksonville, North Carolina. Yeah, we were nowhere near any oh, vineyards, but... You taught me, and you had that little, what is the app you had? Not to promote the app. Oh, um, Vivino, Vivino. I know, I love Vino. Oh, I will talk about Vivino all day. They don't even have to sponsor me. I will, like, literally blow that ad up. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, yeah, it's just brilliant. And if you're, you can kind of go from not knowing anything to pretending to be an expert about wine. It's like that Mm -hmm. app for stargazing where you can see all the constellations. So Mm -hmm. you can, like, really impress someone on a date, whether it's Josh or someone else. You can just talk about all your wines. Oh man, oh, you bring up a bottle of wine to me on a date, and like that's it for me. Steamy. That is it for me. Steamy. He's done. That is hot. He's done. Take so me hot. home. Take me home, honey. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right. Well, so Lucy, I think we talked enough about wine. I think we should like transition over to the crime part. What do you think? I guess. Yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. So, Lucy, this week I want to tell you about a haunting case from where I grew up that is still unsolved to this day. At least it is on paper. This is a case that will make you wonder about how some people are able to get enough power to use it to their advantage and do the bad things. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Sherry Orofino and the Taconic State Murder. In March 1987, Sherry and Paul Orofino were newlyweds. They had just gotten married less than a year ago. Just a few months earlier, they had moved out of Manhattan to Millbrook, New York, which is about an hour and a half north of New York City. They made the moves for reasons that every couple who were just starting their lives together has. They figure it'll be cheaper, safer, and easier to raise kids. Now, I'm from the area, and so I can attest that a lot of people who live in New York City moved away from New York City to get away from the hustle and bustle of Manhattan and just want to settle down. Adding to that decision, Paul had just recently opened a recording studio in Millbrook, which was doing very well. It was busy, and a band had booked out the studio for a month straight. So Paul warned Sherry he had a lot of late nights ahead of him, and he told her he expected to be working past midnight like every single night. Sherry understood and supported him in his new business venture, but likely figured, like, why the heck am I going to sit around in my house by myself every single night waiting for him to get home? So she decided she was going to spend a few nights with her friends in Bayside, Queens, which is where she and Paul were both from. 
Around three in the morning on March 1st, Sherry tells her friends she is going to make the hour and a half trip back home to cook Paul dinner, which feels very late to me, but like, okay, she told Paul of her plans and left. In the meantime, Paul is at home waiting for his wife, and when the time comes and goes when she really should be pulling in without any sign of her, he starts to get a little worried. When a few hours go by, he starts to get really scared, and a few hours later, with still no Sherry, Paul makes the decision to call police. Well, police say it's still too early for them to take a report, which any true crime fan knows is total BS. Okay, at first I was like, this is really sweet, she's going to come all the way home to make her hubby some dinner, and then I was like, like you mentioned, it's three in the morning. Who's who's out there cooking mm. on the stove some stir, you know, a stir fry at three in the morning? Seriously, like, I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, they are like really young. So I don't know. I mean, they're like our age, actually, at this point. So I oh, mean, they're young and lively. Okay. Yeah, I see. yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like they are like younger. So I don't know. Maybe that doesn't like feel so late for like a couple of like, like young people like just living just outside of Manhattan. But still, I mean, like you get home and it's like, like the sun's basically coming up at that point by the time you're eating dinner. Like, I just, I don't know. That feels weird to me. Did she drive home or take the train? She drove home. Okay. And was interesting. And Paul was already at home and she never got back. Mm hmm. Okay. All right. All right. What happens next? I'm like on the edge of my seat. (laughs) So Paul listens and continues waiting for Sherry, worried sick. Two days pass with still no sign of Sherry. And so this is when he calls police back and officially makes a missing persons report, which shares that Sherry was last seen wearing a yellow blouse over a black tank top with black jeans and a black jacket, as reported by Westchester Magazine. And it won't be long after that when police make their first discovery in this case. Police found Sherry's car locked and abandoned off of the Taconic State Park Ray on Route 134 in Millwood, not to be mistaken with Millbrook, which is where Paul and Sherry lived. Millwood is in Westchester County, New York, while Millbrook is in Dutchess County, two counties away and about an hour away. Sherry's car's location is about 40 minutes from her friend's place in Bayside, Queens. So, okay, what stuck out to me there is that the car is locked. Mm-hmm. And her, she's not inside. Right, right. So clearly, I mean, she walked away and, you know, whoever had the keys when they when they walked away, like, you know, had enough sense to lock the door at the very least. But to me, that also says, like, if I'm a criminal, too, like, I don't really think to lock the door. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, that's like that feels like a really specific detail. So, like, to me, that almost says, like, OK, it's so, like so she left her car voluntarily. And first thing I do whenever I lock, whenever I leave my car is lock it. Fair, fair enough, yeah. And it was just, like, abandoned in the middle of a state parkway. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. And she's in nice clothes. Mm-hmm. Sounds like she was styling. Um, yeah, hanging out with some friends. Yeah, just a night on the town for Sherry. And right. then Paul's like, so, I mean, at first I was like, oh, it's two days. That's a long time. But, I mean, we're talking 1980s, so they don't have texts. They don't have, you know, mm-hmm. easily accessible right. phone calls. So, okay, that makes sense. All right. Yeah, I mean, and I can almost even see, too, like, in the 1980s, like, again, like, 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 today, like, I don't hear from a friend in, like, two hours, and I am like, oh my god, like, why aren't you responding to my text messages? Like, this is weird. But, like, 1980, like, they don't have cell phones, like, they don't have, like, all this technology to, like, keep in touch with someone 
whenever they want to. So, like, maybe two days, like, isn't... Like, that still feels like a long time to, like, not hear from your wife, but, like, isn't... Like, that feels maybe potentially, like, a reasonable amount of time to wait to see, like, what happens. Right, and they also, like, didn't... It doesn't sound like they spent that much time together. They sound like an adorable, Mm. classic East Coast couple that, like, commutes, Mm. but, I mean, he's busy at his studio. Paul's busy at his studio. Yeah, and, like, also, too, like, I can imagine, like, if... Because she was staying with friends, so... If I'm Paul, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe she just decided to just stay with friends longer. Like, okay. But, like, you know, at some point, like, you have to call the friends and be like, okay, where the heck is Sherry? Right, right, right. We love an extra day sleepover. The girls are just having Mm. too much fun. But then definitely, like, check in. Like, call Susan and Mm. be like, where's Sherry? You know, on the house phone. They had house phones back then, right? I know we're... Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm intrigued now. So pretty much immediately, Paul is a prime suspect in Sherry's disappearance. He is grilled by police and subjected to intense interrogations. And he tells Westchester Magazine, police tell him that 90% of the time, the husband does it. And that if he didn't do it, he probably hired someone to do it. Which isn't, like, factually incorrect, but certainly, like, a really weird way to base your criminal investigation, like, before you even find a body. Those grilling interrogations to try to admit, mm-hmm. have someone admit to doing something when there's that not that much them. evidence. Yeah, then it's just like, oh my goodness. I mean, yeah. I would be scared. I'd be like, did I do it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah, you start <laughs> second-guessing yourself at some point. Yeah. For sure. So Paul agrees to a polygraph test where the intense interrogations continue. He says police tell him that they saw him with a certain criminal and that they know he hired someone to kill Sherry. Like a hitman? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Or yeah. woman, sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, it's 1980, so probably a hitman, if we're being real. <laughs> So Paul does pass that polygraph test, and I guess this changes minds of police, and they just, like, change course, and they're like, okay, yeah, like, we believe you, you didn't do it. Like, okay, cool. Police set up roadblocks around where Sherry's car was found, and they start asking people what they saw the night Sherry went missing. Maybe, like, a bit of a reach for a very high-traveled area, especially considering this likely happened around, like, four in the morning, but it ends up paying off. Police get a tip that may not have seemed important then, but would definitely be important later. A witness tells a police officer that they saw someone matching Sherry's description being pulled over by a police officer around where Sherry's car was found. And it was just about the same time Sherry would have been in Millwood if she did indeed leave Queens around 3 o'clock in the morning. So this tip seems pretty legit, at at least on the face. Being pulled over by a police officer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is getting interesting. So now in law enforcement's involved? Yeah. So big spoiler alert here. That is a huge detail in this (gasps) case much later on. So store that in the back of your head. No, that's either like in pornos or like in horror movies, I feel like, where the police officer pulls you over. So this is either Pornhub or Unsolved Mysteries. Nothing in between. (laughs) Precisely, precisely. No in between. Okay. So months go by in the search for Sherry with little information and seemingly no real leads to go off of. By August, it seemed like their best chance of finding Sherry was if it just happened by accident. And that's exactly what happened. On August 9th, 1987, five months after Sherry went missing, a father is out fishing in the Croton Reservoir with his sons. One of their lines got caught on a branch, so the father went to go remove it. He looks down and finds what looks like a human skull. 
He immediately calls state police, who arrive a while later and find the rest of the skeletal remains scattered around the area, seemingly from animal activity. Police also find a wedding ring and fingernails, and they were somehow able to determine the remains belonged to Sherry Orofino. Yikes, that is one way for some father-son bonding. Oh my goodness. Yeah, all these years later, they're like, yeah, remember that time that we found a body? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, son, what a great, what a great yeah, time we had. Right, right. <laughs> Crack a cold one a open. Oh my goodness, yeah. that is terrifying. Okay. Yeah. So the fingernails and the wedding ring, were they on her? Were they on the scale? Oh, I guess they would be nearby because she'd be decomposed, right? Oh, like heavily decomposed. I'm guessing that the way that they were, I couldn't find anything that like said how they were able to determine it because this is like way before DNA. Um, So I'm guessing that it was that wedding ring. I feel like that is pretty specific enough that you would be able to show that to like your husband and be like, hey, is this the wedding ring you gave your wife? Yeah, you would hope the husband would be able to like identify yeah. that. Um, how far is this from where Sherry's car was found? So about two miles away in Yorktown, New York. So not too far, but like definitely far enough for um, police to believe Sherry likely didn't walk there from her car. I mean, keep in mind, she went missing in March in New York. So like cold, maybe not, maybe not Minnesota cold. But- <laughs> I you know, I was just thinking that. I didn't realize it was in March in New York. So it's not likely she's like just going for a stroll or like okay, did they did her was her car broken down? Was there any evidence of that? Probably not, right? No, her car was totally fine. Goodness. Were they able to figure out how she died? So no. Sherry's body was so decomposed a cause of death could not be determined, but police investigate her death as a homicide and believe that she may have died during a sexual assault because her clothes were off and scattered when her body was found. Plot twist. Mm-hmm. Wow. I wasn't expecting that. The black and yellow, the blouse. Mm-hmm. It's oh my gosh. That cute okay. outfit just scattered all over the reservoir. No. Shoot, Sherry, that's really sad. Okay, so they thought that it could be a sexual assault, but only because the clothes were scattered and were off of her. I mean, that does make sense. Okay, was there any evidence? Was there any way to determine evidence back then if there was, you know, DNA evidence of a sexual assault? Probably too early, right? So, yeah, way too early for DNA. Everything that I saw was, like, the sexual assault was only because the clothes were off. And so it was, like, like I, like I nowadays, it's, like, you have to perform a rape kit before you, like, make that kind of accusation. And it's, like, that was obviously not the case here. It's a whole ordeal. I mean, what on earth are police doing at this point? Yeah. Yeah, so at some point in this investigation, now that they have moved on beyond Paul, please get a pretty good idea of who may actually be responsible for Sherry's death. And they name him publicly to local media, which is like a really strange move looking back for 2023 because that never happens today. I know you know that in because you work in local news. Yes. <laughs> but I think they may have been using a pretty interesting strategy to get more evidence on the suspect that they have in their crosshairs because they think that he may have done this before. All right, Lucy, how is your wine tasting? A little too good, Liam. I think that the Josh is hitting me. He's he's coming in hot. How about you? Okay, show show your bottle. Show your bottle. My bottle. Ooh. Ah! <laughs> what are you laughing? Let, 
let the record show. It's like a, it's like three Don't quarters of the way full you, are empty. Oh my do god! Do not you're so expose funny. me to the fans, okay? I did see. I'm like, listen, I have like no judgment whatsoever. It's Lucy, a safe space. You know, I'm the last person to about this. <laughs> it's a safe space. It's a safe space. <laughs> um, but I this one of the reasons why I love you is I I did see I did see you were filling up that glass quite a bit. Pace yourself, girl, girly, because it's about to get <gasps> real. No way. Okay, let's hear it. Let's yeah. hear it. Okay. So, in January 1988, Fran Calderon is leaving work around 3 in the morning when she is pulled over on the Taconic Stake Partway in Westchester County. Now, she isn't just some typical driver. She's actually leaving her job as an NYPD police officer. Fran flashes her police ID and asks the officer what the problem was. The officer says she was doing fine on straightaways, but he had some concerns about her driving around the turns. The officer asks if she had been drinking, and she said no. After about 15 minutes, the officer eventually just lets Fran go. But something bugs Fran about this interaction, not only because he was this local cop giving her a hard time about nothing, really, and for no real reason, but also because she thought the cop shouldn't have pulled her over at all because the Taconic State Parkway was outside of his department's jurisdiction. The Taconic State Parkway runs through the Briarcliff Manor, but the department has no jurisdiction over traffic stops on the highway. Instead, that legal responsibility falls on state police. So this cop had absolutely no legal right pulling people over to begin with, let alone to become inappropriate with drivers during the stop. Yeah, no pacing on this one. I'm taking a sip. That's okay. Wow. Um, this cop is creepy. Well, but also, like, think about, like, like, talk about the, like, the wrong person to do this to. Like, she's like, I know my, my stuff and you're not supposed yeah, to Yeah, Fran. Here. She knew. Yeah. I oh, mean, a lot knew. of people, I mean, you know, we, we work in the news world. A lot of people, and I mean, myself included, admittedly, um, I was not well versed with, like, trooper versus deputy versus, um, mm-hmm. police officer, you know, like the sheriff's office, all the different jurisdictions and, and the places that they covered. And mm-hmm. I've realized that a lot of people don't know that either. And they, but Fran, mm-hmm. Fran knew her shit. Uh, excuse my French. And she knew that was n- incorrect. So go Fran. And let's just stop here for a second and talk about your rights as a driver. If you are driving and you're getting pulled over by a police officer, there is absolutely nothing wrong with refusing to stop and that before you are able to call into dispatch and say, hey, like, is this okay? Like, is this real? Like, am I actually getting pulled over? Because dispatch knows. Like, they, like, police officers have to call into dispatch and say, hey, call, like, pulling over this driver for whatever. And then you at least have that reassurance to know, yes, I'm being legally pulled over by a police officer and everything's legit here. Um, and, you know, then you have that peace of mind for you. I didn't, yeah, I didn't even know that. That's a great point. And also you hear mm-hmm. about these like story. I mean, I mean, my biggest fear growing up was being kidnapped and you hear about these stories about people putting a pol- mm-hmm. like a police officer or a deputy, one of those sirens on the top of their cars and pl- pretending to be a police mm-hmm. officer and they're not. And that you should be more aware, which is just so messed up because they're supposed to be out there to protect us. And there's these people posing as that. So yeah. I didn't even know that you could call in. That's actually Taking that's fascinating. But Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I would really encourage anyone to do that. I mean, I feel like whenever you get pulled over, it's such like a scary thing. So I feel like it's easier said than done. But I mean, you have the legal right to do that. And I would really encourage anyone to do that because there are lots, lots of people out there who will take advantage of you. Um, Sorry to throw a, a wrench in here, but... 
What about those states where it's illegal to use your phone while driving now? Are you allowed to call 911? Well, true. So to, so to be clear, when I say that, I mean pull over, oh, you know, into a safe okay. spot, put the car in park, and then call dispatch. I should probably say that first. Okay, that makes sense. So keep your doors locked. Don't roll them down. Just call dispatch. Just give them the little, like, yeah. okay, hold on a second. Don't. Don't intrude right. my space. I'm just checking to see if you're legit or not, mm-hmm. because this cop might not be. Yeah, right. And if he is legit, then he should not have a problem with that. Exactly. Yes, sir. So the next day, Fran calls a friend, a state trooper, about the traffic stop. And probably just going off about this dumb local cop who gave her just such a hard time and didn't know what he was doing and forced her to be late getting home from work at, like, 3 in the morning. Well, this is all Fran's friend needs to hear. Alarmed, he tells Fran that she needs to get down to the station right away, which she does. And when she gets there, Fran's friend tells her that he believes she may have gotten pretty lucky because they're on to a cop from Briarcliff Manor who they believe has been doing this a lot. They connected this single cop to a string of women who were pulled over on the Taconic when the cop made sexual advances toward them. And not only was he inappropriate, but in a lot of those cases, he was out of line from a jurisdictional perspective as well. That's just repulsive. Repulsive. Ugh. I I don't even want to like it. Yeah. That's just, again, what I said, you're trusting these people and then they they violate your trust. That's just, it's one bad apple in a sea of people trying to do good. That's just so yucky. Yeah. So state investigators were able to identify the officer as Ronald Langer, a sergeant at the Briarcliff Manor Police Department. Eventually, they were able to connect him to about eight different female victims. An investigator said, if you line them up, they practically look like sisters. Young, pretty, white woman with blonde hair. Jeez. That's Ronald. He just wears the badge and for... Ugh, that's mm-hmm. so disgusting. Eight women? That might as well... Were they all dead? So, no. So, no, no, no. Just none of those eight women died, just to be clear. And also should be noted, too, that a lot of these women didn't come forward until he was announced publicly as a suspect in Sherry's death. Yeah, they were probably scared. He's in law enforcement. That's what you... You know, it's... That's scary. That's mm-hmm. very, very scary. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, so we're going to get to that in a second, but police were able to determine those eight cases ranged from at least from February 1987 to January 1988. Okay, and when did Sherry go missing again? March 1st, 1987. And get this, we get a very detailed account from one of the victims, and she tells police it happened on February 28th, 1987. The day before Sherry went missing. Dun, dun, dun. Oh my gosh. Okay, so what happened? So very similarly to Sherry, Jennifer Hummel is driving on the Taconic State Parkway in Westchester County, New York, around three in the morning when she is stopped by a police officer. Only this officer is a straight trooper. Now, Jennifer is 19 at the time, and she had been drinking, which was not legal at the time. The drinking age was raised to 21 in 1984, but at the time, New York did not have its zero-tolerance law on the books, meaning anyone under 21 with any amount of alcohol in their system would be charged with a DUI, even if it's under the legal limit of 0.08 BAC. But the trooper lets her go and sends her on her way. Just a few miles later, though, she's stopped again by another police officer near Campfire Road in Millwood. 
It's just nine minutes from where Sherry's car was found. Only this time, the cop was not a state trooper. He was a Briarcliff police officer, Sergeant Ronald Langer. Jennifer tells Loha.com that she, quote, sensed right away she needed to stay calm and not anger him. Langer starts questioning her, asking her if she had been drinking, to which she replies, yes, but she tells him, I was just stopped by a state trooper, I passed a breathalyzer test, and he let me go. So she's like, I'm totally fine, just go about your business. But he's not convinced. He refuses to let her go, saying she's just too drunk to drive. He insists that she comes with him in his patrol car to drive around for a bit until she's okay to drive herself home. So after a bit of back and forth, she reluctantly agrees and goes with him. She says they drove around for a bit, but then eventually he took them to a deserted spot overlooking the Croton River. Jennifer tells Loha.com that they chatted for a while, and he did most of the talking. He tells her how he feels unappreciated in the police force. He complains that everyone mistreats him and even says he had been shot in the line of duty at one point, but didn't get any recognition, which, like, weird flex, (laughs) but, like, okay. At some point, though, he pulls her in and tries to kiss her, but she pulled Ah! back, still very cautious, though, of angering him. She insists that she's okay to drive, and she wants to go back to her car at this point. But he says, nope, you're still not okay to drive, and you still need to stay a little bit longer. So they go back and forth, and Linger finally says that she just needs a, a cup of coffee before he'll let her drive home. So he says he's going to take her to a local diner first. So they drive to the nearest diner, he brings it to her car, and she, like, downs it, like, homegirl, just <laughs> empties the cup into Chugs her that into coffee. Her mouth. An hour after Langer initially initiated the traffic stop, Langer takes Jennifer back to her car, which is still pulled over on the shoulder of the Taconic State Parkway. Langer asks Jennifer for her number, but she says no, but he's persistent. Finally, she agrees and just gives him her number, and he responds by trying to kiss her again, but this time she pulls away, gets into her car, slams the door, locks it, and floors. Hell yeah, Jennifer. Oh my gosh. Get the hell out of there. That is disgusting. Yeah. So Jennifer later tells investigators that Linger tried to call her several times after that, and she never answered until one day she picks up and tells him to leave her the heck alone, stop calling her, and then she never hears from him ever again. According to Loha.com, though, Linger denies pretty much the entire story. He admits that he did bring her to a diner for a coffee to sober her up, but says he never took her to the Croton Reservoir and only called her once after that. Jennifer pretty much tries to push this interaction out of her mind until one day, 18 months after the traffic stop, she sees Ronald's name pop up in the local newspaper connected to a local woman's mysterious death. Police believe that Langer may have something to do with Sherry's death, and the circumstances would certainly appear to be the strangest of coincidences if they're not connected at all. For starters, if you remember Lucy, a witness reported that they saw a woman matching Sherry's description being pulled over where her car was found just a few days later. And this was just minutes from where Jennifer was pulled over 24 hours prior, almost exactly. But on top of that, the location Jennifer describes to police where Ronald took her that night was almost exactly where Sherry's body was found five months later. Looks like Ronald has some explaining to do. Oh, so much explaining to do. Like, Ronald. Come on. Come on. Come on. <laughs> come on. 
I see you pouring another glass of wine. It's necessary. Can you imagine that she literally was like stuck in the car with him? Thank God she got herself Mm. to a diner. What I mean, I'm just picturing him pushing her into a river at that point. So Mm. thank goodness they got to a diner. But uh, I don't know. And even if she went to people at that point, the like the uniform in the diner, I feel like would have not done her any justice. So like she just did the best she could. Yeah. But good for her for speaking up once she knew about Sherry. That is incredibly bold and brave and beautiful and terrifying, honestly. Yeah. Well, so this is all really just too circumstantial of evidence for police. After all, who's to say there aren't two bad cops out there doing things just outside of the law? I mean, odds are pretty slim, but there is some chance, hypothetically speaking. Ronald denies having any connection to Sherry or her death, but in the meantime, a federal investigation against him is heating up. Langer is accused of illegally stopping at least eight different women under false pretenses. Only five, though, could identify Ronald, and one woman, Lori Anderson, actually says it happened to her twice. Ronald is suspended from the Briarcliff Manor Police Department because of the federal investigation, but he ends up resigning in February 1989. He later told Loha.com that he was wanting to quit anyways because he didn't think that he was able to serve as a cop with the publicity going on from this case. So, about a year later, Ronald is arrested and charged with federal Fourth Amendment violations. Is the first time the federal government has ever arrested a police officer for actions taken on duty. In court filings, a judge writes that each of his traffic stops lasted from about 15 to 20 minutes to about an hour. He would pull over his victims on deserted stretches of highway while enforcing intoxication and driving laws while outside of his jurisdiction in Briarcliff Manor. He did not issue a single ticket to any of his victims, but they testified that they were too afraid for their safety during the stops and went along with what they told them because of that. He was eventually convicted and sentenced to six years in federal prison. Hold up. Grab the bottle. Ronald is convicted of laws that pertain to stopping people without a cause, right? Mm -hmm. But he's not convicted of the murder of Sherry. Right. So he served 30 months of his sentence before he was released on parole, but he was never charged with Sherry's death, even to this day. Despite police being very vocal that he is their prime suspect as recently as 2015, police say the investigation is still very active and very open. The lead investigator told a reporter for Lohud.com in 2015 that he was still conducting interviews as recently as a few weeks before that article was published. But they admit that they wish things had been different. One of the investigators even told Loha.com pretty recently that they wish they had access to DNA and the technology that we do today back then because they probably would have been able to build a better case. Even even without the evidence, though, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in law enforcement, but... It seems pretty sus to me. Well, I mean, and it's also, I don't know. And it's, and I know it's very circumstantial. I know you cannot build a case around this, but it just seems weird that it's like all this is happening, like literally within, like, from my understanding, like within the five mile stretch of like one parkway. And it's all just like weird circumstances, like all connecting to this dude, this one officer. And like, it's like, like your, your argument is really like, yeah, like that's just a weird coincidence. Like, do we know her cause of death at this point? Sherry's cause of death? 
No, we never find that out. So that's probably why. And that's so messed up. But it's probably because Mm -hmm. they can't find the cause of death. I mean, five out of eight of these women are Mm -hmm. able to identify him as the weirdo that pulled them over for basically no reason. They're probably sober driving through this area or near sober. One of them even has to be forced to go and try to he tries to kiss her. Um, in the same stretch, like you said, literally mm-hmm. days before, but I, I don't know, maybe it's the cause of death that they're waiting for I, any, in any case. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes me sad a little bit only because it's like, like, you know, we have the benefit of technology today and it's like, if they had that back then, they probably would have been able to prove it. I mean, cause, t- cause DNA does not go away, you know, like it's, it's there for forever. And so it's like. It's like, yeah, they probably would have been able to test the shirts or the the clothes, the the remains and seeing if his DNA is on there. And then, boom, that's it. Like, case closed. Like, you know, there's no denying that. So the man's is still alive. And aren't there all these cases? I've heard of cases where they can literally test the DNA now. Do you think they could test his DNA and her DNA if they, like, had that evidence? That's the thing is some of this evidence is preserved and some of it's not in mm-hmm. cases like these. And I guess we don't know with Sherry. Yeah, you know, and I had that same exact thought, Lucy. I was like, okay, can't they just, like, retest the bones? Like, can't they just do this? But I haven't seen that that has been done. Just, again, from the sources that I've been reading on, like, I would, you know, I would love... You know, if somebody who has intimate knowledge of this case, like, is listening to this and um, is, you know, can reach out to us and, you know, give us that update, just that way we can update this, this, you know, with with more accurate information. But I've seen so much of that where it's been like cases going back to the 60s, the 50s, even where they brought those back when they had more update technology and retested stuff to be able to finally convict someone of this and give these families answers um and it just yeah it just it feels like that should happen and it can happen and i don't really again i just have not seen that it happened here no i love that you said that if anyone knows anything about this case i mean Mm -hmm. feel free to reach out yeah i would love that again if i mean and this is i mean like i said i i I feel very passionate about this because this is where i grew up and so um you know i am not just some you know voice on a podcast like i am a member of this community and i want it like i want this solved because these are my neighbors and so please if an investigator is out there listening to this reach out and say yeah this is the most updated information on this and i would love 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 to update this because i have not seen anything on this as of recently of 2016 yes yes exactly oh my gosh liam um what on earth happens next ronald denies the federal charges altogether and claims to be frames not only in those eight traffic stops but also in sherry's death police kind of share some confusion too about where sherry's car was found if they are operating under the assumption that sherry was being pulled over by a police officer they said where she pulled her car over didn't make a whole lot of sense it was off an exit on the Taconic. So, like I said, I'm from the area, and I'm not super familiar with this particular stretch of the Taconic, but I can tell you that the parkway is, like, notoriously windy and narrow, and you're not even allowed to drive on it until you're able to get your full senior license, so until you're, like, a full driver. So, I can definitely see myself getting pulled over on the Taconic and just, like, getting off of it altogether because it's just, like, so much safer for yourself and the police officer. Yeah, I had no idea. That's, I mean, you're saying we're picturing a, a windy highway, like, like you have no idea. It's, it's like, it's like, even as like a very experienced driver, like it's scary. Is it like mountains? Is it what? Are, what are we mm-hmm. talking? 
Yeah, so you're driving through, like, ridge cuts, like, past, like, reservoirs, like, even for, like, very experienced drivers. It's, it's like, the most dangerous drive you can take in, in the Hudson Valley. Yeah, so Sherry seemed like she did the exact right thing for anyone driving on the Taconic. But, I mean, what about Ronald? What's Ronald up to now? He's still alive? Yeah, as far as I know, and... Like, what he's doing today is kind of the kicker of this whole story, Lucy. Ronald was hired by the New York State Department of Labor in 2001. When asked by Aloha.com reporter about the hire, a spokesperson for the department said that he is innocent until proven guilty and that formerly incarcerated people have the right to make a living just like everybody else. And Lucy... I'm not even going to mince words here. That response pisses me off because obviously I agree with the statement on its face, but that so does not apply to the situation. Yes, Ronald is not a convicted murderer, but he is a convicted of federal crimes. And oh, by the way, those crimes are related to the power he abused as a government employee. Cheers to that, Liam. I just cannot even, like, Ronald, you have no excuse at this point. The department has no excuse. The gov- the justice system has no excuse. I know you're innocent until proven guilty, but what more evidence do you need when you don't have DNA mm-hmm. testing? I mean, if there's any sort of evidence left, any of those fingernails, anybody who knows anything, speak out. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, usually I try to look at all angles, but it's really hard with all this oh, so hard. details to... To find an excuse for Ronald to not be guilty. I'm really trying mm-hmm. and I'm struggling. Yeah. Well, but like, okay, let's put the murder aside, right? Because I, because I, because I tend to agree with like, okay, yes, like he is, he has never been convicted of murder. He's never been charged with murder. So like, let's put, like, we can put the murder aside for here for a second. As a government official, as a police officer, he still like faced charges, was convicted and served time of abusing his power to do horrible things to women that traumatize women and to this day, you know, made them relive that over and over and over again. And you're just going to be like, oh yeah, well, like, that's fine. You know, it's, and I'm not saying that like people who, who serve their time, like I believe in rehabilitation, like that's what jail is for. Like I totally am there for that. But like how, like if I was like for our job, right? Like if I lied on a story right? Like, I would get, that is, like, the basic basis of my job. If that happened, I would get fired from my job, and I would never be able to work another TV station again. And yet, you're telling me that this man was convicted of these horrible crimes against women for abuse of power as a government official? By the way, that his salary is 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 paid by taxpayers, and you're just going to be like, oh, yeah, like, that's fine. Like, yeah, he can come work for us. Like, that's okay. Like, and again, I don't know what he does. Like, he could be like, like, Department of Labor is like a very broad umbrella. Like, he could be, literally be like, like, like picking up trash for all I know. But like, so I'm not saying that he shouldn't be able to do that. But I just think it's, it's a weird vibe to be like, to when you're asked about it to be like, oh, yeah, like he, like he served his time. Like, that's okay. As reporters, we probably even get sued. Like, we probably not even get oh, yeah. hired. We get sued. And then, oh. and Ronald, he, it's not only he's going back into a pro- private like company you know it's not like he's going to work mm-hmm. for, he's working for the government which i would be so for because i don't think that like you know like i again b- believe in rehabilitation i don't think that you should get out of jail and like not be able to live your life ever again like you should be able to get a job but like how are you going to rehire somebody to be get paid by taxpayers again to work for the people and serve the people yeah right and like to be clear like if you so let's just say hypothetically speaking you lived in briarcliff manor 
as as far back as 1987. So you were paying this man's salary for th- via your taxes back in 1987. And you still live in Briarcliff Manor after all is said and done. You are still paying this man's salary because he still works for the government. Like that should piss you off. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I just get that. Get that's gets me so heated when I read that. I just got so mad about oh, it. Get heated, you, me, and Josh. I am heated. I actually heated about <laughs> it. I mean, seriously. All jokes aside, it's just I. You hear time. That's and, not right. You, t- you hear time and time again about these, and and, and for, for some reason, it's particularly in law enforcement maybe because they it's more noticeable because we're dealing with like life or death or like traumatizing uh, who knows but it's just they're mm-hmm. they're let back into some sort of government job or the or the police force or the shit mm-hmm. and you're just like why i just doesn't make sense to me yeah it doesn't it really doesn't and it's just like if i if if you work for the people you should regardless of what you're doing you're still working for the people and you should be able to show that you are worthy of that. Working for the people. Regardless of what it is. Ex- Precisely. Working for the people, not violating women and making them feel uncomfortable and, and mm-hmm. maybe murdering them. I didn't say it. But well, well, maybe, maybe murdering, maybe murdering them. Abuse of power. Yeah. Abuse of trust. Yeah. Abuse of power. No. Cheers to that. Mm. I see you taking that step. Can you please tell us so. what the, if there even is an end to the story? Oh, barely, barely an end. Um, but I can tell you that this makes Ronald's victims just as angry as I am. And I should probably say survivors because that's really what they call themselves. Lori Anderson tells Loha.com that for a while after those traffic stops, she just could not drive on the Taconic State Parkway at night again. Jennifer Hummel said she was surprised when she got a call from a Loha.com reporter because she had successfully pushed Ronald Langer out of her mind for decades. But she expressed some anxiety and a little regret about the situation because she said maybe it could have or maybe even should have been her who died instead of Sherry. And she wonders if she came forward that night instead of waiting a year and a half later, if maybe it could have saved Sherry's life. As for Sherry's case, it still remains, at least on paper, an unsolved mystery. So if you have any information about Sherry's death, you're asked to call the New York State Police at 914-737-7171. I mean, just heartbreaking that Jennifer just like she still is thinking about this. These women are traumatized. And she said it could have been her. It could have been her. That's just. Well, and what blows my mind, it's like it happened. So what? I think we said nine miles away, 24 hours before to the minute, basically. I'm glad you brought this one up. It's just another example of. Of women, um, you know, not having their voices heard until it's maybe mm-hmm. too late. And even like you said, even if it wasn't, even if he wasn't guilty of the murder, it's just still important to have some answers and still have some more information. Right. Right. And I've heard, I mean, I've heard of cases being solved over longer periods of time, mm-hmm. you know, so I am not counting out that there's somebody out there who knows something who maybe is listening to this and saying, hmm, like, yeah, you know what? That was strange. And can come up to police and say, yeah, and that could really be the thing that puts someone behind bars for this. For sure. For sure. I'm so glad you brought this case up. I'd never heard about it before and I can't believe I hadn't. And it's right near your hometown, you know? Well, uh, Lucy, I don't, again, 
Um, don't know how to make this transition. I'm just going to do it because it's like sad ending, but like happy <laughs> that you made it here. And thank you so much for coming on and talking about this and ta- and drinking a glass of wine with me, just like the good old days and talking about talking about some like creepy crime stories. I love it, Liam. We started out in a small town together telling stories there and now you're telling some really big, important stories. So yeah. Yeah. And now we're BFFs and we don't even have to compete against each other. So cheers. To that. Oh, yeah. We used to be competitors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> love that. Love that. Cheers I, to you. <laughs> cheers, bitch. I love you. So tell everyone where you, they can find you and your work online. Right now? No, later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right now. Yes, right now. Let's see. Lucy Nelson TV on Twitter at Lucy Nelson TV. Um, I will be covering all the stories in Utah. There is never a shortage of interesting things that happen here. And if you know any crime things that are happening here, any crime uh, murder cases, I mean, we always like to get the word out and maybe Liam can tell it in his amazing storytelling way. So I would love that. And I, you know, I love a cold case. Um, So if you know of any cold cases in Utah that just need a little push, a little extra coverage, you know how to find Lucy now to get the word out there and maybe find justice for some of the coldest cases in Utah. Oh, amazing, Liam. I'm so honored you had me. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you all so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we will see you next week for another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.